This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Fighting Shadows, Overcoming Seven Lies That Keep Men From Becoming Fully Alive, written and narrated by Jefferson Bethke and John Tyson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McClendon. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, we're just about officially to summer. The weather is warm. It's time for going on vacations. Maybe it's time for going on trips to creepy little cabins in the middle of the woods. Uh, uh, you got to be a little choosy about the secluded locales you select for your weekend getaways. Definitely not as interested in you know, going out into the middle of nowhere for a cabin. Fortunately, at least the summer solstice means that the nighttime will be shorter. And make sure, I guess, pack your running shoes in case you need to run away from any movie monsters. Good plan. Good plan. So, listeners, this week we will be reviewing two movies that involve the need to get away from a cabin in the woods. First up is this week's new release, The Blackening. We're also going to be talking about Jeremy Saulnier's movie Green Room, so definitely buckle in for, for that. We're also going to be talking about Jeremy Saulnier's Green Room, my selection for the watch list pick. Really interested to know your thoughts on that one, Sarah. Definitely. Listeners, we're going to be talking about both those films, Meet Your Fate, on episode 386 of Seeing and Believing. This little reunion about to crack. We got the whole crew back. Really, bitch? A cabin in the woods. Now let's get it all in perspective for all y'all enjoyment. You still a slave to the white man? Y'all gonna start calling my wife the white man, all right? Newness, here's the anthem. Put your hands up that you shoot with. Count your what we with. do on Juneteenth? Oh, hell no. Where are you going? Look for the fuse box. What kind of house is this? Yes, we're here on episode 386 of Seeing and Believing. And yeah, it is summer. It's uh, time to kick back and relax, but don't let your guard down too much, Sarah, with these two (laughs) movies we're talking about this week. Yeah, nope. Uh, I am on high alert at this point, having seen the two movies that we're about to talk about. Yeah, watch your six. We're going to be talking about Green Room, probably the the nastier of the two movies Mm -hmm. in our watch list segment. Really looking forward to that discussion. But we'll keep things a little bit more more light for our discussion of The Blackening. This is a horror comedy, so we'll ease into things with, with this review. Sounds like a plan. This film centers around a group of friends who decide to have a college reunion on Juneteenth weekend, so very timely for this episode. They go to a remote cabin, which is a setup that if you've ever seen a movie before, you know portends dark nights in the woods jump scares, and maybe a psycho killer or two. Mm -hmm. The twist in this film is that director Tim Story and writers Tracy Oliver and Dwayne Perkins have also seen those movies, and they set out to have some fun with horror tropes, particularly the infamous cliche in which the black characters in a horror movie tend to die first. With its protagonists all being black themselves, this leads to a movie that's as interested in puncturing those cliches for a good laugh as it is in making its viewers jump in fright. At the same time, like all horror comedies, it's got a tightrope to walk in balancing the scares with the laughs, and on top of all that, it's also juggling its commentary on racial identity and black people's place in the pop culture landscape. So lots going on under the surface of this one, Sarah. Mm -hmm. My question for you is, 
do you th- how do you think it does in managing that balance? Oh man, I mean it's a tricky balance because you're right. This movie is trying to do a lot and I think it works best when it's just focusing on doing the thing that it is really good at, which is delivering rapid fire jokes one after the other. In terms of horror, eh, I wasn't really particularly scared. I don't think I was supposed to be because again, it is a horror comedy. In terms of comedy, I think it really depended on the moment and the joke delivery. For the most part, the delivery was good. I definitely found myself laughing quite a bit. And Kevin, we were in the same advanced screening. The publicists really did their job. And we were surrounded by people who were very much into this movie. And if you're going to experience it, I think experiencing it with a rowdy crowd who's super into what's going on on the screen is definitely the way to go. Comedy feels like... It's one of the two genres, horror being the other one, where the movie is intended to wind up the audience, give them a little bit of tension, and then break that tension either with a scare or a punchline. And in terms of the viewing experience that we had, I think this movie delivers. I don't know that it was for me, and I think that that's okay, but I'm curious to know how you felt about it. Yeah, I mean, I am pretty much simpatico with you in that I think that this movie, it's, you know, comedy is subjective and uh, judging by the reaction of the of the audience at our screening, like the jokes were landing for a lot of people. They didn't really land for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, it, it's uneven in a lot of ways. I think a lot of that is is down to the writing and maybe some of it is down to either the directing or the editing. I would have to see it again to, to know kind of what to put it down to, but there's, the way this movie is put together, it feels like it's kind of stepping on its own jokes in some places and places where the momentum flags a little bit and we're kind of waiting for it to spin back up and regain some of that energy. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's just, it didn't really work for me. I think you're right that seeing it in a group is the ideal way to see it, but I don't know if even that would really... Uh, salvage it for me personally in the end. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. And maybe it's because, you know, it's we're kind of going into the tail end of the pandemic. We're all back in movie theaters again. Now, I've missed seeing comedies with other people. And so part of that was that communal experience of both watching a movie and then also watching a movie with other people who are watching that movie at the same time. And a lot of what I was hearing specifically at our screening was the laughter of recognition and the laughter of, oh, that joke was specifically for me, and so I'm going to enjoy it even more. And the movie kind of rolls on that kind of momentum. And I agree with you that some of that momentum feels a little bit uneven. There were places where people were laughing so hard that I couldn't actually hear the next joke that was following up the previous one. Um, which feels like a pacing issue to me. But at the same time, even though I missed a couple of those jokes, there was another one that was coming down the turnpike that I could also potentially laugh at or hear other people laugh at. And that didn't really bother me. In fact, I think it was kind of enjoyable to sit and watch a movie that was not intended for me, but that I could be brought into that communal experience anyway. Um, So yeah, I don't know. Like it, It felt as though... I was a guest in the theater and I was kind of a welcome guest. And part of that was the movie's willingness to just tell a lot of jokes and puncture a lot of holes in those horror movie tropes. Where I do think that it falls flat is a lot of that puncturing is something that is 
kind of easy jokes for the most part. And this movie even goes so far as to invoke something from Jordan Peele's Get Out. One character actually tells one of the other characters, oh, you're in the sunken place. And I heard that reference and it made me like a little bit disappointed because it reminded me of a frankly much better movie that is much better at poking those holes in pop culture tropes about black people and the horror genre that didn't feel the need to call the attention to those jokes. Like Jordan Peele is very funny and he's very good at deconstructing genre without explicitly having to tell you that that's what he's doing. And I think this movie is at its weakest when it's telling a joke and then pointing at that joke and saying, did you get it? This is about this specific trope and this is why it's funny. Yeah, I I found myself about halfway through this movie kind of wondering, you know, other than the the fact that it is sort of a, a well-worn trope, like especially in earlier horror films that, you know, the black person is always kind of the first to die in a slasher film. That's kind of, it's been a joke since at least the eight, 90s, probably 80s. I, 80s for sure. You know, I was born in the 80s, so I was probably too young for the discourse at that point. But it's it's so well-known that, you know, here in 2023, simply making that observation, I feel it by itself is not all that funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the movie doesn't really do much to build on those decades of living with that joke. It seems content to sort of uh, reiterate it. And I, that's not necessarily a problem, but I don't think that the film seems all that interested in the horror genre overall. Um, other than those kind of those easy target jokes, like mm. there's there's a lot of moments where, you know, the the a character will, for example, kind of stop and, and sort of, you know, roll their eyes and say, we have to split up. And it's sort of like everybody knows you don't split up in a horror movie. Mm. And the character knows that. But the strange thing for me, you know, watching this as a viewer is wondering, but these characters don't seem to be interested in particularly in horror or even, you know, the particular region of pop culture where that's, you know, a well-worn trope. They seem like they're kind of just average people who don't have a particular interest in how horror movies tend to go. So to see a character sort of stop and kind of wink at the audience in that way seems like it was for the audience's benefit but it didn't make a whole lot of sense within the reality of the movie, if that makes sense. It doesn't seem like these characters are sort of characters who it makes sense to be aware of the fact that they're living through a horror movie. That it, it seems like it's set in a horror milieu to set up those jokes, but weirdly, it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of interest in building an appreciation for the genre into its, into its own world. So mm-hmm. kind of like make it seem of a piece with itself. I don't know if I'm expressing myself well, but I'm wondering if you had that reaction. Yeah, no, I hadn't really had that reaction, but I think it makes a piece of the movie make a little bit more sense to me. So um, what I think you're getting at is this movie has kind of an average moviegoer's understanding of horror as a genre, just the very top line this is what happens in a horror movie. You don't split up. The black person tends to die first. And that's about it. And so these characters who may not necessarily be into horror themselves are at least passingly familiar with those tropes because they are also the average movie goer as well. 
Um, and so it feels as though this isn't like a love letter to horror as a genre. It is just a pastiche of those tropes that everybody is familiar with because they're just kind of there in the water through cultural osmosis. And maybe that's why the horror elements of this movie didn't necessarily work for me because they felt as though they were just, you know, the average version of all of those other tropes that we've all seen a hundred times before. I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think that you need to have excessive amounts of gore or like a truly scary movie in order to have a horror comedy. I think it's fine to just play with some of those elements of the genre, but at the same time, the execution felt so laid back about the horror elements of the script that, I don't know, it, it felt like a comedy that had a little bit of horror trappings on it, but th it's much more comedy than it is horror, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess maybe broad is the word that I'm looking for, where it's just, it seems like hmm. it's, the the kinds of jokes it's making are the kinds of jokes that anybody who's uh, seen uh, a, a, a sketch about horror movie tropes mm. would know about. Um, the the jokes about you know about uh, racial identity feel like if you've watched an Eddie Murphy stand up routine, you would have seen a lot of the same kind of stuff. And it doesn't feel like, I mean that that stuff is solid enough as far as it goes. But it feels like I've also seen a lot of it before, and mm. I'm kind of wondering what uh, story and his screenwriters are bringing to this that I haven't seen before. And I was kind of waiting for the movie to reach that point, and it, it never really got there for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's funny that you mentioned sketch comedy, because that was actually one thing that I jotted down in my notes as I was watching the movie. It, a lot of this feels like very quick sketches done rapid fire over and over again throughout the movie where you get set up, punchline, joke, move on to the next scene, set up, punchline, joke. Um, and some of that builds, like some of those jokes build on each other a little bit. You get a couple of recurring jokes throughout the film, but for the most part, it feels a lot of them felt kind of disconnected from each other. And again, I was fine with that. That didn't bother me all that much. Um, but it did feel as though these characters are just they're there because they exist on the screen at that very moment. And the movie isn't really aware of any character who isn't physically on the screen at that moment in time, because they're all just joke delivery avenues, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, there, there's not a whole lot of building on uh, previously established elements as the film goes on. There, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was one a uh, bit that actually did do that and its presence made me miss made me notice the absence of it mm. in other parts of the film so there's one element that's established almost in the the I think it's the second scene it's when uh three of the characters they're in a car together and two characters kind of share a look and in voiceover they have kind of this telepathic communication where they're so keyed into each other's expressions and body language that's like they're they're reading each other's minds uh, and that's funny. And that kind of appears a couple of times, you know, during like a spades game later on in the movie. And then in the climax, it comes back again in a way that is kind of unexpected and, and uh, flips what has been established about that element of the film's reality in a really 
uh, humorous way, I thought. And mm -hmm. I laughed really hard at that. And I thought, why wasn't there more <laughs> of that kind of careful structuring of setup and payoff throughout the film? I, I feel like your observation of it feeling like a succession of sketches feels right on where every scene kind of has a joke and it plays it out to the end and then it moves on to the next joke, but there's not any interweaving of these kinds of sets up setups and payoffs in a way that gives the film a discernible shape. It kind of feels like it just begins and it ends and there's not a whole lot of rising comedic action to it. I think I've been able to put my finger on it, which is that this movie feels like scrolling through a Twitter feed that is filled with nothing but jokes. You get a mm. joke, you scroll on, you move on to the next one. You get a joke, you scroll on and move on to the next one. Twitter has cooked my brain, so maybe I'm okay with that. But, <laughs> um, and you know, it, it's it's a joke delivery vehicle, and it's not really much more than that. I think if you're going to this movie for particularly bold cultural commentary, you're really not going to get it. And not every movie necessarily needs to be that. Where I do think that this movie stumbles in that regard is it makes its point pretty explicit towards the end, which we won't spoil. And the way that it does so is neither particularly surprising nor particularly illuminating, I think, about any of the characters or the situation that they're in. And again, I kept thinking about Jordan Peele because Jordan Peele is so good at balancing those horror and comedy elements, um, especially when he's making movies that have a lot of that cultural commentary baked into them especially Nope and Us, although I know Get Out is kind of the gold standard for that. I, I actually think that his later movies are a little bit more sophisticated about that sort of thing. And here, there's no real sophistication at all. Again, joke delivery vehicle doesn't have to be. But because the movie invoked Jordan Peele at the very beginning of its runtime, I was kind of aware of that mode of cultural commentary and horror and, com and comedy all at once and that's kind of where i found this movie to be lacking yeah i mean it's 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 a fair point to to mention that it doesn't have to make a lot of deep points about racial identity or uh black people's place in in the pop culture landscape as i mentioned in my introduction mm -hmm. to the segment but i feel like it does try to invoke those kinds of of themes the kind of the central conceit or at least a conceit that shows up at the beginning of the movie and kind of as it goes on gets discarded is this uh creepy board game that the characters find in a game basement it's called the game the board game is called the blackening mm -hmm. and uh its central feature is a an extremely racially stereotypical uh, head in the center of the game board. It's just a straight up racist head. Yeah. 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 And, and it's, it's very much in there to sort of like, um, you know, goose the audience with like, this is, this is a horribly racist thing. Mm -hmm. That means that these black characters are in a place that is not safe for them. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the, that kind of iconography pops up a few times throughout the film, but I don't feel like beyond kind of that, that flash of, this is a racist thing on screen. I don't feel like the film really does anything with with that beyond again just the you know very broad strokes. Especially once we get to a you know a late film twist, which we're not going to spoil, obviously. Mm -hmm. But the late film twist oddly diminishes the racist iconography that came before mm. and makes you question 
why did it need to be there other than just kind of an easy way to make us think that it's more serious about this than actually is? Yeah, it's it's a very provocative image in a movie that is not necessarily being all that provocative. Which, right, and, yeah. and again, like, don't have to be provocative to be good, but if you're going to introduce it, I, maybe you should do something with it. Yeah, I agree with you. Right, so we've... Uh, we've established that you know maybe the the film's kind of blend of comedy and social commentary didn't really work for us. Um, I'm curious to know uh, your thoughts about like performance and uh, how how this cast of characters uh, you know acquit themselves kind of just as as a comedic ensemble. Yeah, I mean as a comedic ensemble again, it really felt as though I was watching a series of sketches, maybe even just on a stage in front of me. And so a lot of these characters kind of blended a little bit together because each person was playing the straight man at different points in time and in different scenes. Um, so as a group of characters, none of them all felt particularly distinct to me, which I, I thought was kind of disappointing. I think that that might be potentially on the script or the direction though, because Everybody within this cast has the ability to deliver a really good punchline really quickly and then move on. So again, we talked a little bit at the top about kind of the editing feeling a little bit off. I think that that's more of an editing issue than a comedic timing issue because in the moments where a shot is left completely uncut and everybody is all interacting with each other, I don't know, the the jokes landed for me and I appreciated the way that they were all delivered. But as a specific cast of characters, I don't know, everybody felt a little bit stereotypical and a little bit flat in one note, which I found kind of disappointing too. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing, so uh, The Cabin in the Woods is, I think, a great horror comedy that also kind of, is working it, it's not making an explicit racial commentary but it is making it is making explicit commentary on types in character types in horror movies specifically how it's central uh the, the four central characters in that one they they begin as sort of stereotypes as sort of like the jock and there's a nerd and there are all these other types and as the film goes on it kind of deconstructs those a little bit and shows that these characters who we thought were kind of one note uh, one-dimensional characters, there's a little bit more shading to them than just that. And I feel like the blackening kind of does almost the opposite where all the characters kind of have one defining trait and uh, you can imagine another movie maybe using that to comment on how maybe often black characters in horror movies do kind of, are kind of one note mm -hmm. in, you know, historically speaking um, and kind of using it to comment on that in that way. But I felt like by the end of the film, it was they had remained flat throughout the entire time. And I was kind of, I, again, I was waiting for it to build on that or develop it in some way. And it, I just sadly didn't see it happening. Yeah. And I mean, it is disappointing because you do get flashes of different character traits from each of these actors as they're delivering a punchline. And it feels kind of unfair to deconstruct any of those punchlines because that would just be like taking a joke and explaining precisely what it is. Right, and that's never going to make it sound funny. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But there are a few moments of physical comedy where, like, for example, where one character is holding a gun and another character corrects the way that they're holding a gun. And that feels like inherent commentary on gun imagery in movies that I thought was really funny. But that's a moment where 
you do get a little bit of that deconstruction where the character who is holding the gun is stereotypically very masculine and then the other character is someone that you wouldn't expect to know how to hold one in the first place. But it's a blink and you'll miss it kind of joke. And then it's followed up with another joke immediately afterwards. So you do get some of those flashes of individuals' characters, but again, it's mostly just going on that same one note character trait that everybody is bringing to the party in the first place. Yeah, I I don't know. I I feel I feel bad, but I I don't know if I have a whole lot to to say about this movie. It wasn't for me at least. Yeah, I mean, I still despite everything that I've said about it, I did still have a pretty good time watching it. I enjoyed watching it. I'm probably going to forget about quite a bit of it maybe tomorrow, but at the same time, it wasn't a bad experience. So See it with an engaged audience, listeners. That's definitely something that you, that Sarah and I can both agree on <laughs> with the blackening. If you do get a chance to see it with an engaged audience or otherwise, let us know your thoughts about this one. Uh, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com or tweet us at cbelievepod. We always love to hear from you there as well. Hit us up on Letterboxd or See Believe Pod on there as well. Love to build our Seeing and Believing community on that platform too. Stick around. We're going to be talking about a slightly nastier take on similar material with our discussion of Green Room here in a second. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is clipped. Now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there who help us keep the conversation about movies going. And in the interest of keeping that conversation going, Sarah, you did throw out a poll to our listeners uh, over on Twitter uh, asking them what movie they're looking forward to now that we're well into summer. Uh, what movie are they really looking forward to making their summer movie? Yeah, so um, I gave a couple of options. Barbie, Oppenheimer, Mission Impossible 7, and then I also threw Elemental in there as well. You know, one for the kids. And uh, we heard back from some listeners who voted in this poll. Unfortunately, Elemental got 0% of the vote, so no one's looking forward to that one, which kind of bums me out a little bit. Mm, Sorry, Pixar. (laughs) Better luck next time. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, 25% of the vote went to Barbie. 31% of the vote went to Oppenheimer, which means that Mission Impossible ran away with it with 44% of the vote. I, when you were reading out the options, I, I know it's, you know, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One or whatever is the actual title. But when you said Mission Impossible Seven, I had to sort of stop and collect myself for a minute. <laughs> Have there really been seven movies in this franchise? I, it's, it's hard to believe. So I think we all know that that's one that you're not necessarily looking forward to. I mean, to. I'll go, I'll go see it. I enjoy those movies quite a bit. I just, I feel like the more they go all in into the Ethan Hunt universe. And uh, like, I don't feel like a Mission Impossible movie should have a, you know, part one installment, part two installment, but that's just me. 
I'm look. I'll go see it, and I'll probably have fun with it. That one. That's one that I am definitely very excited as well for. Um, our producer Jonathan also weighed in, and he said that he can't wait for the Oppenheimer Barbie double feature. Mm-hmm. Um, I told him he had to pick one, so he said Oppenheimer. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Oppenheimer would be my pick as well for a whole host of reasons. I might have talked about them on the show before, but I am curious about Barbie. And I think you and I have talked about if we can make it work at all, we would like to do that Barbie Oppenheimer double feature. Like that would be uh, excellent. Oh, yeah, I definitely want that, too. I might actually go with the listeners on this one, though. I think I'm most looking forward to the next Mission Impossible just because it's a lot of fun to watch Tom Cruise run. And to defy death in a whole host of ways. I mean, the, no no lies, the stunts look great. They always look great. Yeah, so, they do. And, and that's what I'm here for. I mean, really, if you're looking for a summer blockbuster, what more could you ask for than de- death-defying feats with Tom Cruise in various uh, permutations? There's a lot going on there, but... What more could you ask for than death-defying feats by Tom Cruise? Nothing. When you're looking for a summer blockbuster. Thanks for weighing in, listeners. We also want to take this moment to uh, tell you about our our Patreon campaign. I'm sure that long-term listeners are very familiar with this, but in case you're not, we do have a Patreon uh, page over at patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. This is a place where people go if they want to throw a few of their hard-earned bucks our way, help us keep the lights on, help us uh, keep Jonathan well-paid so that he makes us sound good. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of good stuff. And we like to give a little something back to those of you who do support us in that way, uh, just as a way of saying thank you and maybe kind of getting, uh, you know, chitching up things a little bit here. And one of the ways we do that is by giving our $10 a month donors the opportunity to dictate one movie to us every year that we have to review on the air. And we're going to be having one of those coming up here probably in the next month or so. So keep your ears open for that. But if that sounds good to you and you have a movie that you would like to hear us review on the air, might be worth your time. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it, then we come back, and we talk about it. And usually there's some sort of connective tissue between the new release that we're reviewing at the top of the show and then the watch list release that we talk about in the back half of the show. So this is kind of the people fighting racists in the woods in a cabin. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Double feature. So this week, uh, Kevin, you picked Jeremy Saulnier's 2016 movie, Green Room, um, which has a pretty simple premise on its face. It's about a fairly desperate punk band named the Ain't Rights, who are on tour in the Pacific Northwest. They're out of gas. They take on a job at a club that they really would prefer not to have to, but beggars can't be choosers. And so they end up playing a gig at a skinhead bar in Oregon. Um, 
one of them ends up witnessing a murder in the titular green room, and then the band ends up having to fight for their lives in order to be able to get out of the club and get home alive. And that's pretty much it. Most of this movie is a siege movie featuring a band of very young, very desperate people who are trying to get out of a situation that they didn't necessarily sign up for, never wanted to be in in the first place, fighting people who mean business and, you know, not a, not necessarily in the good way. So, um, Kevin, you recommended this movie. It's a movie that I've had on my list for quite some time, but have been, frankly, a little bit scared to check out. So I'm curious to know, um, it's very gripping. And what do you find to be the thing that grabs you the most about this film? Yeah, I mean, the the thing that I I really appreciate about Jeremy Saulnier's uh, two movies, Blue Ruin and Green Room. Uh, they're, they're kind of cut from the same cloth in one particular way, which is in their use of violence. Mm. I feel like it's easy for, especially for a movie like Green Room, which is sort of, you know, it's almost, a, it's a single location almost uh, film. Uh, it's it's very focused on, you know, a fight for survival through any means necessary. So you know that, you know, violence is going to be part of that deal going in. Um, and I feel like it's easy for a movie like that to make the violence either prurient, where you're kind of like wanting to see just how gross it can get, or it wants to make it cathartic, where you want to cheer on the heroes as they elude capture and inflict punishment on the horrible villains. Um, or uh, it's just trying to be as awful as possible just to like really just gross the audience out. And what I appreciate about Saulnier's approach is that he, his, his portrayal of the violence is matter of fact, but it's matter of fact in a very upsetting way. Mm. Um, in this film and in Blue Ruin, you are never allowed to appreciate or be entertained by the violence. It's awkward. It's not, it doesn't even, it doesn't look cool. It doesn't kind of have that, that appeal of, you know, it's horrible and you're horrified by it rightly so, but it's also staged and shot in such a way that it's cinematically thrilling, sort of along the lines of Truffaut's, you know, famous maxim that it's impossible to make an anti-war movie because just cinematically rendering warfare makes it exciting and thrilling and therefore fails at actually capturing what war is like. I feel like Saulnier's use of violence in Green Room, um, the violence is is awkward. Um, it's not perpetrated cleanly and it's not entertaining or thrilling. It's upsetting in a way that actual violence uh, I mean, not that I've witnessed the kinds of violence that happens in this movie, but actual violence is upsetting. It's not It's not something that uh, you can be transported by. It's something that simply feels wrong mm -hmm. to you. And I, and I think that that's what this film really gets at is the various modes of human depravity that we see over the course of the film. They're there to upset us and to show us how wrong uh, people can go. Mm -hmm. And um, it, for me, when I witness a film, that kind of stuff on screen, it kind of reminds me of kind of like a photo negative of what 
is the, the ways things should be. People should not be hurting each other in these ways. People should not be skinheads. People should not be scraping by to survive. So they have to take these kinds of jobs. There's all sorts of things going on in this movie that are horrible. And that weirdly makes me remember that things shouldn't be that way and they don't have to be that way. Mm. And that's kind of my roundabout way of saying why I really appreciate that this movie, even though it is deeply upsetting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it's not for everyone. It is super violent, but I think it's an extremely strong film and I really liked having the chance to revisit it. Yeah, I really appreciated this movie a lot. I, I Again, I was afraid of it for a very long time and I think that that was the case definitely for good reason. But Sonia is just such a good filmmaker and so good at establishing those stakes and that tension and at making you care for this band of young punk kids um, before dropping them into water that's probably just about at the boiling point already and then ratcheting up that tension. I really care about all of these characters on this screen. Um, specifically the ones in the band. I don't particularly care for anybody else that they come across. Um, but Sonia takes a very brief amount of time. It's maybe about 15 minutes before everything goes haywire. Um, but he takes enough time to give us a sense for who these kids are, why they're doing what they're doing. They're, they're in a band that does not have any social media. They don't really promote themselves all that much. They're really just skipping around from gig to gig. And they're so focused on delivering music in a live venue because that is the principles that they stand by. And they all feel those principles very strongly and they're going to stand up for them. And I think that that is an undercurrent that makes all of their actions in the movie later on down the line make a lot more sense. They're, vo they're all very coherent, cohesive as a group. And they're also very coherent characters individually. Like you get why they all tick, you get why they all act the way that they do. And when they start to get well and truly desperate after being holed up within the green room, everything that they do makes perfect sense. And so you don't really need to spend all that much time explaining why they would think the way that they do. Um, and Sonia is just so good at shooting that violence, like you said, in a way that feels very understated and upsetting and shocking and sudden. And I think it's the suddenness of the violence that really got me because that's what real life violence really is like. You don't really see it coming. And then once it's happened, the whole world kind of changes a little bit. And Sonia manages to capture that again without making any of it look cool but it is something that is memorable and kind of sticks with you and haunts you in a way. And it's that haunting quality that goes along with the tension that I think really makes this a very potent cocktail. Yeah, I think a lot of that has to do with the editing and, and the sound design. So there, one way I think that he does kind of capture that that quality of the, of the on-screen violence is that um, it's, it's very easy to think, you know, like, oh, we're going to show a person say getting stabbed and uh kind of the 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 first way you might conceive of making that happen is like okay make make the editing really jarring like fast cuts uh maybe uh include some something on the soundtrack or in the sound mix to really you know just make you 
feel that knife going in and make you kind of, you know, batter you almost with the editing. But the way Saulnier shoots it, it's, it's very sudden. It happens quickly, but there's no like sudden, you know, jolt on in the sound mix to happen there. Um, it's kind of the beginning of the shot and the end of the shot. There's, there's a lot of space on either side hmm. of that, of that uh, act of violence happening. So you, you kind of, you're, you're sitting in a space and then all of a sudden the violence kind of intrudes on it. And then the violence has stopped and you're still kind of in that shot. Mm -hmm. And that's a very counterintuitive way to shoot the violence. And that's why it feels upsetting is like, wait, no, no, there needs to be a a cut here. Like I need to feel the cut here so that it feels almost where the artifice kind of makes itself clear. Mm -hmm. And Saulnier doesn't permit that to us. And that's... I think a really interesting and very effective strategy. Yeah, yeah. And the way he frames it too, it's all dead center, kind of following the the George Miller school of action where everything mm-hmm. is within the crosshairs of the camera. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's It's jarring and it takes up the entire existence of each of these characters as it's happening. And then they all kind of move on, not as though... Nothing has happened, but they keep moving on because you kind of have to keep living. That violence is a thing that happens at a specific point in time, and it's happened, and then it changes the world around them. And yet, it's not something that they're going to continue talking about because they're desperate enough that they just need to get out of that situation, and they can't afford to keep talking about what it is that they're doing or what it is that they've just seen or endured. And I like that the band's sense of pragmatism towards that violence like makes perfect sense because that's the kind of thing that they're going to do they're very practical when they run out of gas they're going to go siphon off gas and that's how we meet them as characters is they're all waking up in the middle of a cornfield asleep in a car that has just been running and so they've run out of gas so they have to go and get a hold of it by any means necessary and we see that practicality and that making do with what they can find a little bit later on in the film when one character does get stabbed and um, he finds a roll of duct tape and he tapes himself right back up because that's the only thing that he can do is he just has to be able to keep body and soul and skin and sinew together long enough to be able to get out of that situation and then find something hopefully potentially better for him. Yeah, I think that that quality also just like, again, the, the it's just so, it feels grounded. Is it emphasizes the number one just the fact that all these are just they're just kind of they're people they're regular people they're not they're not there's nothing particularly remarkable about them and their bodies are just as fragile as a real person's body Mm -hmm. um and uh saulnier emphasizes that in the visuals and also in the in the casting and the performances I think one of the most interesting bits of casting, well, there's there's a couple. Uh, Anton Yelchin as kind of our our central character is, you know, he's the leader of this punk band, and he's um, one of the uh, focal points of the action throughout. And and Yelchin to me kind of has this screen presence of he doesn't he's not a physically imposing guy. He's very thin. Um, he's got kind of that that reedy voice. His face looks very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to see him kind of doing the things that he's obliged to do in this movie um, to to protect himself and try to make it out alive, um, it, it feels worse somehow. It feels like 
he shouldn't be doing this. This is this is wrong. You mm-hmm. want you want to protect him. Mm-hmm. Um, similarly, uh, Macon Blair is cast as the uh, kind of the the right hand man of the of the neo Nazi who owns this bar. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of the the guy who um, cleans up first responds to the big mess that they're in. He's you know kind of um, doing a lot of legwork to you know organize the uh, the assault on the green room and Macon Blair is kind of uh, he's not a very imposing figure he's he's short he's a little pudgy he's got a very ordinary face his eyes are maybe a little bit protuberant he looks kind of more like he'd be more at home like as a bank manager or something mm-hmm. so to see him as the manager of a neo-nazi bar um, kind of calculating how he's going to kill these people who have witnessed a murder like it he doesn't feel like a movie character feels like oh he's just a guy who's gotten his life has gotten really bad he's allowed himself to um be brought into this horrifying world of you know human evil but that doesn't like make him into like a a mustache twirling villain he's just a guy and that's true of you know most evil people like evil people they're all just guys Mm -hmm. and that's part of what makes the evil kind of frightening and i like how saulnier actually emphasizes that but these aren't these aren't monsters they're just people and that's what makes it scary Mm -hmm. yeah it's funny you didn't mention the probably the most jarring casting choice in this entire movie which is that the owner of the bar is played by none other than patrick stewart who I don't know about you. I think very much casting against type. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And very effectively so, because he's got that gravitas, like the Shakespearean gravitas to be able to show that force of personality. But I think of him as Picard. Like I don't think of him as being a paragon of evil necessarily. And so it's extremely jarring to watch him try to run damage control around this bar and trying to prevent this band from getting away and reporting what they have seen to any authorities. Um, And the way that he plays it is also pretty understated, I think. And it's very effective. He gets scarier and scarier as the movie goes on. And then one character kind of underlines it near the very end where he says, you were scarier at night. And I think that that gets at that point that you had about um, Macon Blair's character being, you know, just a guy. Patrick Stewart is also just a guy but he carries with him that gravitas and that authority that i think makes the weight of the decisions that he makes throughout the course of this movie even more horrifying because we tend to think of him as being you know a very good person and a good character and yet he's also doing all of these horrible things on screen as well and he's doing that because that's something that everybody's probably capable of like there is that level of sin and depravity and, and capability within all of us and then you have to make the choice to not go down that path you know yeah i you know i i like stewart's performance a lot and i think that gravitas is part of it but i think he's just so calm like he's just got this He's got that authority in him, and he he spends most of the film just kind of very calmly, like saying, "Okay, this is what needs to happen," um, and he he kind of talks almost like like a manager, like he's just you know he's just trying to clean up this mess, but this mess in this case is 
he needs to murder, uh, you know, oh, like, sorry. <laughs> but this mess in this case is he needs to murder a bunch of people. And the, the way that he just very level-headedly kind of calculates that out is, is frightening. And I think it speaks to the choice on Saulnier's part to make uh, the villains uh, skinheads. You know, part of it is obviously like you you want these villains to be like the worst possible people you can be, so that you you have a rooting interest beyond just you want the main characters not to die. Um, a good way to do that is you know, as Indiana Jones would tell you, like Nazis, we hate these guys. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's part of it, but also part of it is um, you get the sense from Stewart's performance that he's so used to just regarding certain people not as people, but just as um as weeds to be pulled as obstacles to be removed as uh problems to be exterminated Mm -hmm. that he he doesn't feel any emotion about ordering the deaths of people or like at one point uh one of the uh characters uh gets horribly uh you know assaulted and stabbed um but he doesn't die immediately and Stuart's character, whose name is Darcy, incidentally, which is another strangely mm-hmm. uh, non-threatening name for such a threatening person, Darcy Darcy just coldly says, "Like he's not dead. Good. Just let him, just let him keep bleeding. That'll be better for when we make his time of death look uh, different when we set up the the scene away from the bar." And just it's frightening because he just he's doing he's doing the calculus. He's not really seeing this as a person. He's not really seeing it as anything it's just a problem to be solved and oh it's good luck that this guy is bleeding out in front of me mm-hmm. that's that's terrible it's terrible yeah <laughs> it's really chilling yeah and i think it kind of underlines and contrasts really interestingly with the ain't rights as well because none of these characters are really doing any calculus at all either they're just living like fairly organically just going from place to place picking up gigs when they can get them, making the calculated move that they need to make in order to get to the next spot, but not necessarily making any calculations beyond that. Like they're not trying to use other people in order to be able to exist. Like they're just treating other people as people. And then occasionally they will also take a very principled stance. When they show up at the bar and realize the nature of the gig that they're taking, these characters know that they really don't have much of a choice other than to take the money that they've been contracted to take. But they make their feelings about the gig extremely clear by playing a cover of a Dead Kennedy song that explicitly says, like, Nazi punks, you're not, you're like, we do not agree with you and we're going to tell you in no uncertain terms. Um, which I appreciate. They're They're very principled characters. And then I think that that plus their kind of flying by the seat of their pants attitude towards life and towards the world contrasts very interestingly with Darcy's way of viewing the world, which is very cold and calculated and essentially turns everybody around him into tools and objects for exploitation, um, including the people who work for him. There's a moment where he basically sets up two of his own people to be fall guys in order to distract the police and keep them from investigating the club further. And he does so with a wad of cash and a couple of knives. And then he hustles those two people under him into a cop car and says, like, 
basically good luck. Like we know that they're not going to be getting any help from him because he doesn't care because all he cares about is getting out and about using other people. And I think the movie makes a very good point without explicitly having to state it that the moment you start treating any other person as less than human, you start to treat everybody in that way. Um, And I think that you don't quite get that level of illustration without being willing to go to the dark depths that this movie does. Yeah, the and I think the 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 dark places this film goes, Sonia is doing that very specifically kind of as a counterpoint to the punk rock scene that is is the the setting for uh, the you know, the action of the film, but also kind of just the waters these these characters swim through. So the the band, they're the ain't rights, you know, they're kind of living the the punk ethos, right? Like they're just, you know, they're going they're going gig to gig. They don't really uh have a whole lot of possessions. They they see themselves like the music is more important. They're they're so into the the punk way of life. They they don't even release albums mm-hmm. because they don't want to commodify their music they want it to be solely like a, a live only experience where you come and you know you you get in the mosh pit you throw some punches you throw a bottle at the stage that's what punk is for them and that's kind of that's that kind of posture is the way all you know a lot of punk evolved and a lot of it was sort of growing out of this desire to like you know be anti-authoritarian to kick against the system in some way um, but as the film goes on, we, we come to realize like for this band, that is kind of just a pose for them. They're not really that hard. They're for the most part, they're just regular people who find that their principles align with that ethos, but they're, they're not the sort of person who is going to actually like commit violence against the system just because mm-hmm. they're not violent people. And so when they run up against some people who really, who literally will, do whatever they want, do whatever it takes because they literally just don't care. That's uh, a really instructive counterpoint that Saulnier throws in there. And I think he's highlighting the difference between somebody who kind of just, you know, holds holds certain principles and acts according to them and somebody who's just nothing but principles. Everything, everything human has kind of been leached out of them. Mm-hmm. And their ideology, in the case of the villains, their commitment to neo-nazi ideology that's all that remains their humanity they've almost like forcefully pushed their own humanity away and that's what makes patrick stewart starcy so frightening and maybe also why uh when he's kind of in the cold light of mourning and they see him as just an old man who has kind of (laughs) forsaken his own humanity he he doesn't seem horrifying he seems kind of pathetic Mm mm-hmm and I think that's that's a strong moral vision for a film that I feel like often gets saddled with, uh, you know, it's just being provocative and violent for its own sake. And I think there's more to it than that. Yeah, I completely agree. This movie is a lot smarter than just a bunch of people holed up in a room trying to fight their way out. But I think it does that so well because it marries that form to that function so tightly that you can't really separate the two from each other. This isn't a mental exercise. It's also something that is happening, quote unquote, in real life within the reality of the movie. And if you try to separate any of that theory from what's happening in practice on the screen, I think both of those things would kind of fall apart because you you functionally can't do that. 
yeah, I don't know. I can't say that I enjoyed this movie, but I can say that I thought it was a really, really good movie and I thought it was a gripping one. And it's one that I think I'm going to be thinking about for a really long time. I I really, the, the first time I saw this movie, this moment really stuck out to me and rewatching it this time, it, it stuck out to me again. And I think I'm going to be thinking about it a lot too. It's the, the shot that Saulnier gives us towards the end of, one of the attack dogs mm. um, has has sort of escaped and it's just sort of wandering down a road by itself. Uh, you know, it's still wearing its leash, but nobody's holding on to the leash. It's it's just completely free to go where it wants. And there's something about the way Saulnier shoots that dog walking down the road where we're kind of like the camera is almost looking over its shoulder, so we're sharing its perspective. And the road is stretching out in front of it. It's off the leash. It can do what it wants. And it has already killed. Mm-hmm. What's it going to do next? There's something about that image that I just feels so so foreboding to me about like human depravity off its leash. Something like just say it that way. It feels kind of trite, but I feel like visually that that shot has a lot of power that it, it sticks in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean I'm going to be haunted by the conclusion of that shot, which is that the attack dog goes and it lays down next to the guy who trained it to do what it does and it just lays its head down on his arm and that i think is is a really devastating summation of everything that the movie has done leading up to that point too yeah yeah well i'm glad that you you enjoyed this movie like i said it's not for everyone so Mm -hmm. i'm glad that it it was for you at least it was very much for me yes uh listeners if you had a chance to uh watch along with us or if you want to check out this movie after hearing this review it is streaming on hbo max i believe it's it's probably rentable on other Mm -hmm. uh, streaming platforms as well either way we're interested in your thoughts uh what meaning do you find in this film do you find meaning in it it's Got a lot to uh, recommend it, I think, and there's a lot to talk about with it. So let us know what you think. You can, of course, email us, tweet us, hit us up on Letterboxd, whatever you want to do. Definitely interested in your thoughts. We're going to pull back from (laughs) the darkness a little bit next week. Uh, Our review of Pixar's Elemental is going to be coming up, and Sarah, you've got... Uh, a lighter pick to go with that for the watch list segment. Actually, maybe not that much lighter, honestly. Really? Okay. Yep. So we are going to be um, watching for the watch list pick Kelly Fremont Craig's Edge of Seventeen. I think I mentioned it in our review of her excellent movie, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, which just came out a little bit earlier this year. And um, it's a movie that I keep thinking about. It's kind of a coming-of-age movie, which is what Elemental certainly seems to be. So I figured we'd probably do something along those lines and also get the chance to visit a movie by a filmmaker whose most recent film we both liked quite a bit. Yeah, after Are You There, God's Me, Margaret, I'm definitely even more interested in in checking out uh, Craig's earlier work. So Looking forward to that. Listeners, if you want to watch along, it is streaming with a Hulu subscription and it is rentable on demand through all other major streaming services as well. So you can check it out that way. Looking forward to checking it out for next week's episode. But for this week's episode, I think that'll do it. Seeing and Believing is brought to you, of course, by the Christ Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing.